just about every month or so, I'll see a news report or or read an article in the newspaper about this ever-increasing problem known as identity theft. According to the North Carolina General Statutes, which I went online to read a little bit about it, chapter 14 defines it as a person who knowingly obtains, possesses, or uses identifying information of another person living or dead with the intent to fraudulently represent that person for the purpose of making financial or credit transactions in the other person's name to obtain anything of value, benefit, or advantage. And it goes on for a few more pages. In other words, somebody uses your name, your personal information, gets a hold of your credit card number, and I read in this research that about 100 million credit cards are on sale out there that they've gotten a hold of. And for those of you that have a really good credit rating, they might go for as much as 50 to $60. And they use them one time, which is a good incentive to have a poor credit rating, just so you, you know. Identity theft is exploding. In fact, according to figures from the U.S. Department of Justice, identity theft has grown to the rate of 50% in just the last few years. They anticipate just about everybody being impacted by this. Six years ago, I read government officials estimated that there were about one million computer programs designed to hack into institutions, networks, banks, or whatever to get at information that really doesn't belong to them. They now estimate six years later for that one million number to have grown to right around 130 million programs designed to basically get at our stuff. It's expected that identity thief or thievery will surpass all other traditional forms of property theft combined in the near future. I clicked on illustrations of identity theft and one particular woman nearby received surprising news from her accountant. According to this article, an identity thief had stolen her personal information and used it to file a tax return to get her money that she had coming. And evidently, filing fraudulent tax returns is one of the fastest growing areas of identity. Thievery which I guess means don't pay your taxes and you're safer. You didn't hear that from me, okay? But let me keep going. I'm teasing. As a result, her accountant could not file her tax return because somebody had used her social security number, and that was already logged in. So she'd have to wait. It would take about six months to sort this one out. In the meantime, she had to wait to receive her $2,700 tax refund. I also read that identity theft is most prevalent in Arizona where, if you can believe it, one out of every 650 people will be impacted negatively in some way by identity theft. The other leading states are California, Florida, Texas, and Nevada. Aren't you glad I didn't say North Carolina? (laughs) It's troubling news, though, isn't it? There's no doubt, as Solomon wrote in the verse came to my mind, that ungodly people truly lie on their beds at night thinking up new ways to commit evil. In fact, I I went back to that verse and took another look at it, Proverbs 4.16, where Solomon actually was saying that there are people who, who cannot go to sleep 
unless they have come up with a new scheme to defraud somebody. They just can't get a good night's sleep unless they're stealing from somebody else. Millions of people are affected, victimized by identity theft, certainly not just in this country. In fact, uh, our oldest daughter, who is nearing her term in Santiago, Chile, early on she, she was having a cup of coffee in a Starbucks. Yes, there is Starbucks even in Santiago, Chile. While she was in there, somebody stole from out of her purse her debit card. She couldn't find it that afternoon. That was the only time she'd used it. So she called me, and and I said, well, you know, reported to the bank. But I said, honey, you don't have anything to worry about because somebody would need your PIN number in order to, you know, uh, use it. By the end of the day, hundreds of dollars had been charged to her card, which means I'm no security expert. I'm going to keep the job I have here at the church. But evidently, the person that took her card had also, as part of the scheme, watched her punch in her numbers at the counter. As she thought over those events in that brief period of time, she actually came to the conclusion that it was one of the employees at Starbucks who had stolen it. She couldn't prove it, though, but she did decide never to go back to Starbucks again. And that lasted for two whole days, and then she's back, but... At least she's more careful, at least from what I understand. We are dismayed and and troubled and bothered and concerned. And just about every account you have now has the addendum, would you like protection from identity thievery? But has it ever occurred to you that, that Christians are, by definition, people who have someone else's identity? We're called Christians having taken the identity of Christ as our own. We didn't steal it, but we weren't born with it. Something happened, right? Something happened to us. We were born again by faith in Christ alone and inducted into his family for as many as received him, Jesus Christ. To them he gave the right to become members of his family, children of God, John 1, 12. So the good news is your new identity wasn't some kind of identity theft. It was actually an identity gift. God gave you the gift of his identity when he made you a member of his family. And he evidently gave you the power of attorney because you can sign in his name. You can transact business in his name. You can speak for him. You can represent him. Imagine all of that is true. He even gave you his son's name, effectively calling you Christian, even though that was a a derogatory name the world came up with. That is a delightful name to us and the plan and purpose of God. It simply means we are kin to Christ. We're his kin, as they would say in North Carolina, for those of you that moved here from Nevada. We belong to him. We're in his family. And we're co-regents with him in the coming kingdom. I want to return your attention to where we left off in our study through 1 John and chapter 2. Because John is about to emphasize our new identity basically affecting all of our activity. Not only affects our future responsibility, but our present activity. We're going to pick it up at verse 28, and we're going to get through verse 1. I had hoped to get through verse 3, because as I read this 
this paragraph, four words came to mind, but I'm only going to have time for two of them. So we're going to come back and finish up the paragraph. But I want to give you two words that are characteristics of our new identity. The first word is simply this, preoccupation. Preoccupation. Verse 28, 1 John 2. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, literally that class condition, since you know that he is righteous, you also know by experience, the Greek verb means, that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him, is kin to him. Now let's go back and take a little slower look at this. Verse 28 begins with the words now and now. And I would agree with, with others that this would be a great place to begin chapter 3 because it is a new thought, and I'll show you why in a moment. In fact, just as an aside, if you're new in the faith, you may not know this, but chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They're not original to these letters. In fact, John is simply writing a letter. He would use paragraphs as he wrote, but that's about it. Chapter and verse numberings were added much later by the Reformers as study aids, and they are wonderful aids in our study. We think of going to this verse or that chapter. And if you keep one translation throughout life, as I've done with the New American Standard, for the most part, I know which side of the page it's on, and that helps me too. The first time an English Bible included both chapter and verse numberings was the Geneva Bible, printed, first published in 1560, and then most of those divisions were copied over by the King James translation that came along a few years later in 1611. The reason I think that it would be a great place to start a new chapter here is because he begins with this emphatic particle, noon, and now, or and since this is so, I have a new thought for you. Little children, he writes, abide in him. Simply put, have fellowship, have communion with him. And then you'll notice down in verse 29, there's this command to practice righteousness. I love the idea of translating it that way, practice righteousness, because it's something you never perfect. It's something you practice, just like you do with a piano or maybe some other instrument that you're learning. You don't consider yourself to have mastered it. You practice it. Practicing righteousness, by the way, is not what you want to do in hopes of producing a new birth. It's what you want to do as proof of your new birth. It isn't so that you can gain a new identity with Christ, but because you want to reveal that you're kin to Christ, and this is your identity. Think of it this way. Your new identity is God's gift to you. Practicing your new identity is your gift back to God. Now, the Apostle John, if you've been with us in our study, you know he's already talked about abiding, fellowshipping, communing, and he's already talked about practicing righteous living. But in this new chapter of thought, John has this preoccupation in mind. It's in his mind. He wants us to be in our minds. A preoccupation for every believer's heart and mind. And it's this, the soon appearing of Jesus Christ. 
Did you notice? Go back to verse 28 again. Now little children abide in him, have fellowship with him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. His coming is the word parousia, which literally refers to Christ's presence, woodenly translated, being alongside us. The parousia, the coming of Christ, is actually twofold. It includes the appearing of Christ in the clouds for his redeemed, which would be at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, and then following the tribulation, his coming from the clouds with the redeemed as he sets up his kingdom on earth, Revelation 19. Now, since John here in this text is referring to a believer then being ashamed at Christ's appearing, the reference would be to the rapture and that which would follow the bema seat. The bema is that time of evaluation, that time of judging the activities of the believer and rewarding in grace and goodness those things which he actually motivated in and through us. It's a, it's a reference to that bench where the judge sat in Paul's day and where athletes stood following the Olympic Games and they were rewarded for the way they ran the race, those who were victorious. Upon that bench, judges sat and rendered judgment based on the cases that they heard and the evidence presented. So Paul uses that and John uses that also Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, and you can read that at, at, at uh, your leisure. But upon that bench, then, Jesus Christ is pictured as, as coming alongside, that is personally reviewing every believer's activity and everything of, of a believer's life that is worthy of being rewarded. It isn't a time to say, ah, look at that sin, or look at that sin that's been dealt with. But that sin does affect certainly the way we've lived, the way we've run our race, which will then impact the way we are rewarded. Now, obviously, for Christ to come alongside us individually and evaluate our lives will produce immediately in every honest heart in here, including mine, a sense of, oh, a sense of regret a sense of shame. I mean, who in church history, all of church history, will not wish they had remained more passionate for Christ, more diligent for Christ, more preoccupied with his coming? I mean, even the Apostle Paul, the older he got, the more evil he became in his own thinking. So that at the end of his life, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Nobody beats me. It's sinning. 1 Timothy 1.15. He would say, I'm going to refuse to, to boast, to glory in anything other than the cross of Christ. Galatians 6.14. I mean, if not Paul, who would ever be confident? Your translation may even refer to boldness. This unwavering confidence of standing before the holy gaze of Christ our chief shepherd as he evaluates our lives. So what is John talking about? This verse, frankly, has always troubled me, and I'm glad I had a few days to 
to work it over. What is he talking about here? That we're going to be confident at his evaluation, which follows his appearance in our lives. Well, this may be tedious, and I'm sorry, but let me take you through this, and I want you to stay with me because it can impact so wonderfully so many things. The word John uses here in verse 28 for confidence, parousia, is a word in the ancient times that actually referred to candid speech. In fact, it came out of the political world for a candidate to speak candidly. What that meant was he would tell the truth. He had no hidden agenda. In fact, it was translated open speech. And that's the idea. So by the time the first century arrives and and the apostles are by the Spirit of God choosing language, this word referred and could be translated here, I believe, clearing up some confusion with the word that it became to be understood by, simply this, openness. You might write that in the margin of your Bible. Or transparency. Openness. So go back to the text and it would, it would say something like this. So that when he comes, we may have transparency. We may have openness and not shrink away from him in shame. Well, how do you have transparency when he comes, should he come today, and not shrink away from him in shame? That obviously goes back to our our understanding of confession, doesn't it? Of having a transparent walk with Christ that is open. There's nothing hidden. There isn't any sin we're managing as if he doesn't see. Oh, I'm not going to worry about that. That's not a big deal. We're not going to be, you know, we're going to, we're not going to be legalistic, for goodness sake. All of that kind of conversation simply manages sin and is anything other than a transparent, open life before him. And, and, and the thought occurred to me in my study, and let me give you a little pop quiz. Can you remember someone in the Bible sinning, and then God appeared And because of their sin, they shrank away rather than enjoyed his coming. Let me hear you. Adam. And, okay, I think it was her fault too. She ought ought to be included in this whole problem. All the women are going, Adam, Adam. And all the men said, Adam. Got some wise guys right down here that want lunch whenever it comes. Okay. Adam and Eve. And why did they shrink away in shame? Because they're hiding sin. They're hiding. They're, they're, not, they're not running toward them. Oh, forgive us for what we've done. No, we're going we're gonna to hide this one and hope he just doesn't see us hiding behind that tree. Listen, I don't think any believer... And if it's understood properly, I don't believe John is saying that we're ever going to reach a point where we're going to stand before the Lord with some kind of confidence in ourselves and say, okay, Lord, great, it's finally my turn. Got all those other people out of the way. It's my turn, and am I ever confident that I'm going to be crowned? (laughs) Yeah, you're going to be crowned all right. That's the way I think of it. No, I believe the idea here is that when Jesus appears for us, which means we will appear before him, that we will actually receive his presence with openness, we, chief sinners as well, but we've lived up to that moment. This is the encouragement to live up to this moment, confessing 
openly, with open speech. In fact, think of the word confession. It means saying the same thing as God. Not hiding anything. Openly confessing our sin to him. So that when he comes, there's no hidden agenda. And we can greet him with openness, transparency. We're not going to look for a tree to hide behind. Because up to that point, this is the encouragement. Not to build up in yourself some kind of confidence. Not to have all these things, okay, I got one, two, three, four, five, now I'm ready. Lord, please come now. No, not that at all. But I'm confessing. In fact, I think those who know Christ the longest, you'll find that the distance between them sinning and them confessing grows shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And their awareness of their sinfulness grows greater and greater and greater and greater. Now, there are some here who've written on this text, men I respect, say that John isn't referring to Christians at all. Because obviously you've got a little problem if you're talking about somebody shrinking away in shame and they're not confident. Well, I think that misses the entire point, but they would say that John is referring to Christians who are confident and that those who shrink away in shame, well, they're just not legitimate, genuine believers. And they got finally found out. Well, the trouble with that is multiple. First, if you go back to verse 28, look there. John is writing to whom? Now little children. Now little children. He's talking to believers. Secondly, John tells his children that the purpose for abiding in Christ, that is having communion with Christ, is for the purpose of not being ashamed at his coming. That reference to the rapture. He's not coming for unbelievers anyway. Thirdly, John uses the middle voice, for those of you that really like the technical stuff, for the shrinking away, meaning that they're feeling their own shame. Believers, children, little children, those in the faith. This is a reference to the believers' feelings of shame. And fourthly, for those of you that are in second semester Greek, John uses the first person plural subject of the verb. In other words, he's not saying on all those, you know, all those fake Christians, all those not really genuine Christians, they're going to shrink away. He doesn't say they, he says we. We. So that we, little children, will not shrink away in shame. See, the picture John is painting for us here is not of an unsaved individual, but of a born-again believer who has allowed sin to abide in his life rather than abiding in Christ. He's fellowshipping with sin rather than fellowshipping with Christ. And that unrepentant believer, were he to be in that state of unconfessed sin when Jesus comes, his level of regret and shame will only increase. Just as there will be levels of reward levels of responsibility and authority in the kingdom, so there will be levels of shame and regret. In fact, I find it interesting that John is the only apostle who refers to this again in his second letter that we'll look at more carefully when we get there, Second John and verse 8, where he talks about, because of unrepented sin, forfeiting your full reward. He's talking to Christians. He's not saying you're forfeiting your salvation. You are forfeiting your full reward. An obvious reference to the Bema seat evaluation of the believer before 
Christ. And I think that's the concept here in 1 John chapter 2. The idea of remaining totally open before the Lord, daily confessing, sometimes moment by moment, sin so that we can enjoy his abiding fellowship and communion with him so that should he come at any moment, we will have openness before him. The slate, so to speak, daily confession has been taking place, is clean. No shame as he evaluates our race, our run. By the way, the incentive here isn't just that we might, you know, we're going to hurt ourselves. Man, I could have gotten another sapphire for my crown, but forgot to confess that. That's not the idea. It's deeper than that. So that we might not just hurt ourselves, but so that we might not hurt him who wants to abide with us in communion so that we don't grieve him, so that we don't rob from him worship we should be giving him daily. But sin robs that, doesn't it? Warren Wiersbe writes about a, comments on this text by writing about a group of teenagers who were enjoying a party and and one of them suggested they go over to this night spot and have a good time. And one of the young women, Jan was her name, said to her date, well, that's what you're going to do. I'd, I'd rather you take me on home. My parents don't approve of, of that place. To which one of the girls responded sarcastically and said to her, oh, you're afraid your father will hurt you, huh? No, Jan replied. I'm not afraid my father will hurt me but I am afraid I might hurt him. Isn't that a maturing child? So also with us? Is it just that we're going to be hurt? We're going to miss something? We're going to get one less ruby? Or that his heart is hurt and worship to him is robbed? John is effectively saying, let there be this preoccupation with living for him in light of his coming for you so that there is unmitigated joy and openness because there's a life of confession of sin to this one who is our mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This preoccupation should stay on our minds that he could come today. That's the preoccupation of those who are captivated by their new identity. There's one more word, the word exhilaration. The word exhilaration, preoccupation and exhilaration. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. The opening words here of this phrase, John is literally saying, look, Your translation may read, behold. You can render it, look at this. He's so excited about it. What what are you excited about? Well, look at this manner of love. Look at this great love. Look at this kind of love. Different ways that's translated. It's a word, this manner of, this kind of, this great. Rare in the New Testament. A literal translation is, from what country? It's almost a question. What country did that come from? In other words, it's so foreign, it's so unique. Where did that come from? It implies a a reaction of astonishment. 
mixed with admiration. You marvel. You're amazed. The disciples used this word, by the way, on one of those rare occasions when Jesus stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves. You remember that story? He basically said, be still. He he said, be hushed. And the wind stopped and the waves immediately were calm. And the disciples of Matthew 8 verse 27 said, same word, what manner of man is this? In other words, what country did he come from? (laughs) This is He had to come from another God. It's like for us saying, what planet are you from? So foreign. What kind of man is this? John is writing, look at this love from God. What planet did this come from? So foreign to us. So unique. Can you believe this kind of love God has for for us? And look further at what he writes, that God bestowed on us. Don't miss that. It means we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, we didn't buy it, it was bestowed on us. It was gifted to us. This is an identity gift to us. And the verb translated bestowed is in the tense which means it's permanent. It is irrevocable. It's not like he bestowed on you his love where you joined his family and then 10 years later he said, I can't put up with you anymore and kick you out of the family. It's irrevocable. It's unchangeable. That's why Paul would write, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, his love for us is so high we can't get over it. His love for us is so deep we can never get to the bottom of it. His love for us is so wide that we can never get around it. His love is so long we will never come to the end of it. I love the way the hymn writer put it, and it came back to my mind. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? And were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain that ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. John says, this is exhilarating truth. Would you look at this? This must be from another country, another planet. And with obvious gratitude over this new identity, notice exactly what John has in mind about this gift of love. Don't miss this. He says in verse 1 that we, look at this, this is amazing love, that we should be called children of God. We should be called the children of God. This is passive. The fact that God is actually the one calling us that. John is saying, that's the marvel. Not that we're calling each other, yeah, brother and sister, we're in the same family. No, God is calling us children of God. He's introducing us. That's my child. That's my son. That's my daughter. He's introducing us this way. The world might call you a lot of things. God calls you as children. In fact, a couple of Sunday nights ago after the chapel hour, a woman came up to me, young mother. She had on her hip her adopted toddler. 
They've been working through the process, and she told me, she said, the adoption papers this week were finalized. She had tears in her eyes, joy in her face. They're, it's, it's, it's completed. It's official. He now has our family name, and although you've seen us around, I wanted to come up here tonight and formally introduce you to my son. This is my son. He has a new identity. He has a new family. He has a new name. Now, there are a number of ways you can get into a family, right? I thought about the different ways. I came up with three. If there's a fourth, no one's told me, but here are the three. You can get into a family by, you know, being born into the family in the usual way. We, one author calls that the, the principle of life, whereby the life of the parent is passed on, giving life to the offspring. Secondly, you can be adopted into a family. That's the principle of law. Papers are drawn up, legally executed, and the new family member enters into all the rights and privileges enjoyed by a biological, naturally born child. In fact, that's the New Testament concept of adoption, by the way. Under Roman law, adoption was a legal contract where a man chose some someone outside his family to become his legal heir. And it was common in the days of Paul for them to choose a, a, a grown man, sometimes a middle-aged man. They were adopted, giving them the legal rights to become the heir to the estate. So you can become a, a member of the family by adoption. That's the principle of law. The third way you can enter into a family is by marriage. We could call that the principle of love, where both a husband and a wife are legally members now of each other's family, even as they create their own family. That's a great summation. I think you have these three principles, and the exhilarating point of our own inclusion into the family of God is that we've become members. Have you ever thought about the fact we've become members, and maybe your mind is already ahead of me, by all three? We have been born again into his family. That's the principle of life. We've been adopted into the family of God with all the rights and privileges as legal heirs of divine royalty through Christ who fulfilled the requirements of this principle of law. We've been also chosen as the bride of Christ, chosen by our our kinsman redeemer, our coming bridegroom, made members of the Father's family. That's the principle of, of love. So John could write, as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God. If the enemy or somebody might say to you, what what right do you have to be a child of God? What right do you have? You could say, well, three of them actually. I have the right through the principle of life, through the principle of law, and through the principle of love. There you go. They are irrevocable. I mean, if one could be broken, the other can't. None of them can be, according to Scripture. We are triply sealed, as it were. Ravi Zacharias, in his book, talks about the joy that comes from knowing that you've been chosen, and he uses the context of adoption. In his book entitled, Why Jesus, he wrote of an orphanage in India built by believers that are friends of his and countless children with deformities from birth have been delivered to this orphanage. They've received medical help and loving attention. 
and adoption is the goal. One little boy was often passed over for adoption because of a particular thinking disorder that didn't always connect thoughts. He was difficult to maintain, manage. He was often confused. He couldn't connect one thought after another. About nine years of age, he began to realize that he wasn't being selected for adoption. And he began asking, why wasn't anybody choosing me? Through a wonderful series of events, Zacharias writes, a couple from Texas who had already adopted one child from that same orphanage went back to the States and just couldn't get this nine-year-old boy out of their hearts and minds. And finally, they called the orphanage and they asked if he was still there. And he was. And through the generosity of the couple who had established the orphanage, paying all the legal expenses for this second adoption, the day was set for this little boy to be taken, picked up, and taken to his new home. And there was a special thrill for this little boy because not only would he be reunited with one of the little boys that had been his housemate earlier, now they were going to be brothers. He was excited about that. But he had also been given a, a name by his adopting parents. They had written ahead and said, go ahead and prepare him, and we've selected a name for him that will be easily recognizable, understandable. His name is Anson Josiah, but we're going to give him something really simple that he can go by. It's just the initials AJ. And so the staff made a little name tag for him, put it on his shirt, AJ. And as soon as he had it on it, he understood what was happening. He began walking around all over that campus, telling all the kids and all the workers, pointing to his name tag, saying, you can call me AJ. My new name is AJ. There's only one word to sum up what was coursing through that little boy's heart and mind. Exhilaration. John adds, just as, I don't know, just a point of realism to us at the end of verse 1, and this is where we're going to have to stop after this, but he, he reminds us that the world isn't really going to get in on this joy. He writes, the world doesn't know you. That doesn't mean they don't know who you are. That's a phrase of depreciation. What that means is they don't think anything of you. Who are you? You're nobody. Well, don't feel badly about that, John says. You look at the last part. He says they thought that way about Christ, too. Who was Christ? Oh, he's a nobody, too. But you can just walk around tapping, as it were, your new name tag. And you can tell yourself and others, I have a new name. It's Christian. It's Christian. You can call me AJ. Adopted by Jesus. I thought of that in my spare time. I think that works, huh? AJ. Beloved, we have a new identity, and with it, a preoccupation for the coming of Christ, and with that, that constant confessing, constant abiding, constant communing, constant fellowshipping, and exhilaration that we have this new identity and we belong to Christ. And by the way, the triune God has made it secure. God the Father chose you by his love. Jesus Christ paid all the adoption fees with his own life and blood. And the Holy Spirit has signed, 
sealed and secured you by his indwelling presence to make sure you get delivered to the right heavenly home address where you will live forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the truth of this new identity and what it ought to do in our minds and our hearts. We're grateful for the promise of your coming, Lord Jesus. And while we would never believe we could arrive at some place where we would stand before you with some kind of self-assumed confidence or boldness, we can stand before you with openness. By the way we've lived, by the way we've admitted our sinfulness to you, by the way we've daily confessed our sin to you, by the way we've daily pursued fellowship with you. And, and even now, would you cause that to be true in our hearts and lives? Maybe right where you're sitting, you need to just confess your sin, something you're hiding, something you're cherishing, something that would cause shame and regret should Jesus appear for you right now. Is it really worth hiding? Is it really worth keeping? Is it really worth doing? Certainly not. Confess it openly, with open speech, candidly. Thank you, Lord, that whenever we do that, your blood continually cleanses us from all sin as we say the same thing about that sin as you do. And now we're ready. You may not appear today or tomorrow or in our lifetime. So cause us to give you everything about our lives, fresh even today, hands, feet, lips, heart, will, gold, silver, plans, because you deserve everything. Thank you for loving us, for paying all the fees, and for securing and sealing us, and then allowing us to have your name. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
take